You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. Well, well, well. Well, good morning, everyone. How you all feeling? Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. Only three of you were polite enough to answer or even think about it, probably. Hey, if you don't know me, my name is Mark. I'm normally down at Collingwood Park of a Sunday morning, but today I'm here and I'm happy to be here. And yeah, yeah. Because we are continuing our series, Ghost Stories. That's Holy Ghost Stories. Yeah, and today I have a ghost story for you, and it's scary. It's also a bit probing. Hmm. Yeah, you can take that how you like. (laughs) Yeah, so anyway, we're going to talk about the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, in power and witness. How does that, what does that look like? How does that, how does that look in our lives? How does that look in a city? What does, how, how does that affect bringing revival to a city? So exciting stuff, I would think. I would, I would think. Would you think? Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll just, we'll just go with that. We'll go with the 15%. Yeah. Hey, the, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter one, it opens with a, a, a curious story. The prophet Ezekiel on his 30th birthday, he's in captivity, he's in Babylon, he's been carted off by Nebuchadnezzar with uh, a, a, a lot of uh, Israelites to Babylon. And he's walking beside this irrigation canal, the, the Shabar Canal, and he sees coming towards him a storm. And he looks at the storm and he sees that there's lightning and thunder and, and clouds and and cherubim and wheels spinning and, and, a, and a dazzling platform and on that platform is a throne and on that throne is a creature of human likeness is how he describes it, glowing and shrouded in fire. It finally clicks to Ezekiel what this is and he calls it the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And that's what it, that's what it is. So why did it take Ezekiel so long to recognize God in, a, in, a, in, a, in an unusual place. It's because of that. It's because for Ezekiel, God's place, that the presence of God lived in a temple in Jerusalem, specifically in a, in a chamber called the most holy place. And that was it. That was the only place that God could be. So here is Ezekiel experiencing the presence of God in what is essentially an occultish pagan country. What are you doing here, God? You can't be here. Ezekiel was shocked. To bring this into a a, a contemporary setting, um, back in in about 2012, my son went to ministry college in California. Uh, He was one of the students there. There was like thousands of them. And while he was there, this happened. A young guy, fellow student, decides he needs donuts. And so he heads down to the local supermarket to get some. As he's moving past a checkout, he notices a lady with a hearing aid and he asks her, can I, can I pray for you? And, and she says, yes, you can. And she keeps going. He says, no, no, no. Can I pray for you now, right here? And she says, all right, all right. Yeah, okay. A bit reluctantly. It turns out she's 50% deaf in one ear and 100% deaf in the other ear. And he prays for her in the supermarket aisle and she gets healed on the spot. And the shop assistant sees the whole thing and starts crying 
the a lady at the cash register is, is saying, this is God, this is God. And the woman who got healed is, is crying too. So the guy seizes his opportunity. He says, yes, it is God, and he's not finished yet. And so he grabs the microphone off the checkout assistant, and, and he asks her first, but then he says, attention shoppers. God has turned up in the supermarket, and he's healed a lady of deafness. Madam, come and tell everybody in the supermarket what's happened. And so this woman gives her testimony over the intercom. And when she's finished, she hands him back the mic and he says, I believe that God wants to do more. And so a crowd gathers and he says, I'm hearing uh, new hip and carpal tunnel syndrome. And, uh, and anyway, the crowd comes up and, and he starts praying for people. And this woman comes up on a little, one of those little um, motorized wheelchair things. And she says, I'm the new hip. And another guy comes in who's a concert pianist who's out of work because he has carpal tunnel syndrome. And so anyway, he prays for the two of them and they both get healed right there in the supermarket. So, yeah, it's great, isn't it? And then the young man recognises that he has a crowd and he has a microphone, so what should he do? He preaches the gospel, he makes an appeal and people get saved. So both of these pictures, both of these pictures illustrate something to us. The fact that God is present in power outside of the four walls of the church, that he can operate anywhere. He can operate where we are because we're believing and we have faith. For Ezekiel, it was the temple. He believed that God could only be in the temple, but there was God in Babylon, ready to do something, ready to do something new in Babylon. This morning, I want to shake us loose from the idea that God only operates within the four walls of the church. I know that sounds normal to some of you, but there's a prevailing mindset that salvations only happen here, that miracles only happen here, that healings only happen here, and that is certainly not the case. They can happen in your school, in your university, in your office, wherever you are, in your neighbourhood, wherever you are, you can bring the power of God. And this is something we need to understand collectively as we look to take the gospel to our city. You know, it, I mean, we've talked about the Holy Spirit in us, yeah, that's good, and for change and for power, and that's good, but we've got to do something with it. We're taking up a breakthrough offering to do something with it, to look outward, not inward, to look towards the community, to look towards where people are hurting and needing the power of God, needing Jesus in their lives, to take it there. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, how the Holy Spirit does that in our lives. So that's why it's a scary ghost story. You know, Jesus said, you will receive power, book of Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Judea, sorry, Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? That ends of the earth includes Queensland and Ipswich as well. So It's for us to do. We've received power. We receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us to be what? His witnesses. Say witnesses. Yeah, good. Okay, that wasn't the first time that Jesus talked about this. Talked about the Holy Spirit coming on people and producing something in their lives and what the implications might be for those who follow them. What he actually said, he repeated a few times, but he started to give his public an idea, an inkling of 
what we're going to read about in our foundational scripture for this series. It's found in the book of John, chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. We're going to read it. It's on the screen, verse 37. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me and drink. Specifically, anyone who is thirsty may stand face to face with me and drink, it says in the original language. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me and drink. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered his glory. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit coming into us, but flowing out of us, out of our innermost being, the old, the old King James said, will flow rivers of living water. When Jesus makes these big statements, he usually makes them against a backdrop of something that's actually happening at the time, and this is certainly the case here. He's talking about during the Feast of Tabernacles, it was the last day of the feast, that's how the scripture opens, the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Why is that important? The Feast of Tabernacles is like an Israeli festival. It it goes for eight days. And what they do is they celebrate coming out of of Egypt and living in tents in the wilderness. And so what they do, it's sort of like a a campout week for Israel. They make these temporary shelters in their their yards or wherever it is they, they have them. And they make these temporary shelters and they eat in them and they sleep in them, and they remember the time in the wilderness. It's warm, it's nice weather, it's end of harvest, so it's a celebration, and it's a pretty festive time. And John records that Jesus spoke this on the last day, the eighth day of the feast, and according to custom, according to what happens in Jewish tradition, is on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, The high priest will take a container and he'll go to the pool of Siloam and fill it up with water, mix it with wine and pour it out over the altar while all the people sing and worship. Why is that significant? The pool of Siloam is a picture here. The pool of Siloam was like a a big Olympic pool. It was like 70 metres long and it was fed by this spring called the Spring of Gihon. And the Spring of Gihon flowed down through the Hezekiah's tunnel, which was like in the rocks, and it wound around sort of like a, an ancient water slide. And it came out at the Pool of Siloam, and it gushed out. The water gushed out. So when Jesus was talking about rivers of living water coming out of us, he was speaking against the backdrop of water gushing out of a rock into a pool. So the disciples and Jesus' followers had a picture there of what it looked like for when Jesus spoke about it. So, he said, rivers of living water will flow from our innermost being. So, Jesus is talking about living from day to day with this stream, with this stream coming from heaven, flowing into us, and then flowing out of us into the people around us. Something that would help us daily to walk in power, but also to witness for him. And this is no small thing. So we've talked about already this year, housing the Holy Spirit. So we've talked about the Holy Spirit coming to us 
in, in an indwelling form when we receive Jesus as Saviour. Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us and helps to transform us. But we also talked about the baptism of, Holy, of the Holy Spirit where Holy Spirit comes into us, in, onto us in a, in a way that is powerful, an entry place to power and the miraculous. We can put it this way. Holy Spirit is in us for transformation and on us for power, for others. In us, for us, and on us, for others. So let's explore these two concepts. First of all, let's talk about how we live with Holy Spirit in us. What In, in, in the context of how we connect with our community, our neighbours, the people that we work with. So we're going to read from Colossians chapter 4, just a couple of verses that talks about this. It says, verse, verse 5, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. A theologian called Alan Crider, in his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, said that by the second century, Christians made their Sunday gatherings a secret. They were all secret in secret places. They wouldn't invite their non-believing friends to a gathering. The reason being that you didn't know who was coming. And if somebody came in who was upset with the Christians and what they were doing, they could report them to the imperial magistrate and the Christians could be imprisoned or worse. So it was all underground. Church services were underground. But think of the dynamic that that would have created. Think about that, where non-believers, non-Christians could not look at a worship service or a Christian gathering to hear about Jesus. They had to actually get the picture from the lives of the Christians that they knew, the everyday lives. They couldn't come in and sit here and, and, and check out a worship gathering. There would be no soft lights, no music, no smoke machine, nothing like that. They had to actually get an idea of what being a Christian was like from the people who they knew who were Christians. They would look at how they did life, how they did family, how they did relationships, how they did parenting, how they did sex, how they did money, how they did politics. And that would be the only way that they would find out about Jesus. It was the Christians that attracted people, not Christian worship services. And that's how it happened. Evangelism happened just by believers explaining their lives. That's what that verse said in Colossians. Be ready to give an answer. Be ready to give an answer. When somebody says, why do you go to church every Sunday? Be ready to give an answer. When somebody says, why do you give money to the church? You be ready to give an answer. Why do you put your kids in Centro Kids? Be ready to give an answer. That's all that you can do. That's it, you don't have to go and, and, and browbeat people, hit them over the head with your King James Bible. don't have to do that. Just be ready to give an answer because you, the life that you're living should actually require attention because it's so culturally different. That's why Paul said, be careful how you live. Live such good lives among the pagans that, that it requires their attention. Okay? 
So if we can view people like that, that God is at work in their lives, even before their lives may reflect it, think about that there's something going on behind the scenes. If they ask a question, that's a good sign. Because Holy Spirit is in there. He's working ahead of us, ferreting around in our lives, drawing them towards Jesus. So let's work against that background. So that's witness. That's how Holy Spirit works in witness. But let's now look at power. And let's just read a few verses. And and Holy Spirit power just oozes out of of these verses. They're well-known, familiar verses. Mark chapter 16, verse 15 to 18. He, being Jesus, said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creations. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Now, just a qualifier on that. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. But if you read the book of Acts, you'll know the Apostle Paul did want to do that. He wanted to go into Asia But Holy Spirit stopped him. Then he said, I will go into Bithynia. And Holy Spirit stopped him again. And finally, he went to Macedonia when the Holy Spirit opened up Macedonia to him. So we can go into all the world, but we have to do that in connection with God, hearing from him, staying current with him and hearing, hearing his voice. Not to go everywhere where we think we can, but hearing his voice as to where to go, because that's That's what Paul did. See, why are we surprised that Jesus said these signs will follow them that believe? We shouldn't be. We shouldn't be surprised that the miraculous will follow us. Follow us out of church on a Sunday and into the Monday to Friday, yeah? Hmm. Some of you aren't so sure. All of us should have a theology of the supernatural, a theology of the miraculous, and that must contain the fact that the supernatural and the miraculous are available to us in the everyday, outside of this building, away from church, away from fellow Christians, that we carry this. These signs will follow them that, what? Not them that are ordained, not them that stand on the platform, just them that believe. That's it. So we have to have a theology that encompasses healing at register 10 and, and things happening in the supermarket and things happening in our workplace. Start, here's a starting place. Start by praying for people you know who are sick and ask them if you can and tell them that you are and tell them to let you know if they get better. And apart from anything else, it's a connection point, yeah? Just one practical thing that invites the miraculous. So, Holy Spirit helps us to live a transformed life, but he also helps us to bring power, God's power, into our everyday situations. Now, come with me on a journey. Let's see what this looks like when it happens in a city. The passage we're going to look at this morning, and it's an extended passage from the book of Acts, gives us some material insights into what it looks like when Holy Spirit brings revival to a city. What's his part and what's our part? We're going to examine that. 
Can I say that the way we talk about revival is, is sort of a bit romantic and perhaps a bit naive. And we think that, you know, something nice happens, that God does something nice and everything is kittens and moonbeams and rainbows and unicorns and we all go skipping off into church and have wonderful worship services. Well, let's have a look and see what actually happens when the gospel comes to a city, specifically the city of Ephesus, and this is my ghost story, and it's scary. Paul starts with 12. That's the background. Paul goes into Ephesus. You might know the story, and he finds 12 disciples who have only had the baptism of John the Baptist, a repentance baptism. So he baptizes them in the name of Jesus, lays hands on them. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in other tongues. And then, a bit down the track, this happens. Acts chapter 19. We're going to read it, verse 23. Curious passage, but stay with me. We'll get the picture. Verse 23, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. That's Christianity. A silversmith named Demetrius, who had made silver shrines of Artemis, which was a goddess in Ephesus, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and he said, you know, my friends, that we receive good income from this business. And you see how and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He said that it says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger that not only our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. The people seized Gies and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. And even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. But when they realised he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, they can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And after he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Basically, it was a riot. That's what happened. Our secular society is happy for churches and for Christians to be around as long as the social landscape doesn't change. It wants us to push our faith 
and our lives to something that is internal and personal and has no real effect on anyone but ourselves. And I don't know about you, but there's something in me that wants to push back against that. Yeah? That feeling that internalizing my walk with God is positioning it for something less than it should be. So how do we preach the gospel in a city and in an age that wants us to shut up? When Paul comes to Ephesus, what happens is he tries his tried and proven method of church planting, his church planting strategy that works in most places. And he goes to the most receptive audience. He goes to the synagogue, to the Jews, and he connects with people with a similar worldview and an understanding of Old Testament scriptures and an understanding of God and history, his relatives, the Jews. But when they're not interested, instead of browbeating them and arguing with them, he retreats. He takes the original disciples that he has and he goes to a place called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus and he starts a discipleship school there. And this discipleship school goes for two years. And you'd have to think it's a pretty effective one because the scripture says that the entire region, all the residents of Asia, Asia had heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, in this two-year period. So you'd have to think that Paul's discipleship school is pretty effective. It's pretty effective discipling right there. All the residents, the ones with religious backgrounds, the ones with pagan backgrounds, they all heard the gospel in that region and it wasn't a small region. And with that level of saturation, the miraculous starts to happen. After the gospel is preached, these signs will follow them that believe. The Bible says extraordinary miracles started to occur. Such was the intensity of the discipleship that went on that the power of God was released and not just your average run-of-the-mill miracles, but extraordinary miracles were released. Hankies and aprons that had touched Paul's skin were used to heal people and cast out demons. Could you imagine walking into a room, the demon-possessed man manifesting right there, you know, his head's twisting around and he's spewing green bile and you have, you're armed with a, a hanky. In the name of Jesus, I release this hanky. And it works. It works. The demons come out of him. People are healed. And then after that, some guys think, hey, this is brilliant. We could, we could really make a business out of this. And they try and replicate what Paul is doing. And they try and use Paul's formula. But what happens is they don't, know, they don't know God. They don't know Jesus. They're trying to just cast demons out without actually any relationship with God. And what happens is the demon-possessed man beats them up and they go running out of the room naked. Not a great day in church, I tell you. But even that, even that that happens there, I think they were called the seven sons of Sceva. In the, and they tried to do this. They got beaten up and they ran out of church. But even that results in a move of God and there's a public renouncement of occult worship in the city. There's an acknowledgement of Jesus' power and the people come out and they start burning their idols and their occult paraphernalia. And there's a citywide move of repentance. This happens because of discipleship and the power. And we read in verse 20, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Okay, So far, so good. This is revival, yeah? 
it gets better. It had been good, but they've poked a principality, a territorial spiritual dignitary, demonic entity is now unhappy. What was just a fringe movement has moved to centre stage and we read that there was a great disturbance about the way. So here we are in Ipswich, practising the way of Jesus together. Is there a great disturbance in the city because of the way we practise? Is there? No. Because ultimately, when we take Jesus seriously and we serve him, it leads to confrontation. It does. And we have to learn to get comfortable with that. Not love it, but we have to understand that the gospel always creates conflict. And this is what happens here in verse 23 when it says, there arose a great conflict about the way. There's, there's uproar. There's uproar in the city. So when you really get to understand what Jesus is about, when you really come to terms with it, that he's not your buddy Jesus to fix all your problems, that he's actually the resurrected Lord of the universe, that he's come to establish his kingdom, and the ultimate outcome of that is that all nations will bow before him, that attracts resistance, yeah? There's a clash of kingdoms here, and the gospel causes an uproar. Now, this guy, Demetrius, he's one of the craftsmen, and he's, he starts the whole thing in the, in the, in the, uh, in the theatre. He's been impacted because of his devotion to the temple of Artemis, and his work and the economy of the city is being threatened. And he says in verse 27, there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, and the, the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia, will be robbed of her divine Identity, divine majesty. It was all right to let them meet in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. They weren't affecting anyone else. But now this thing is out of control. What they do behind closed doors is one thing, but now it's affecting the whole, store, whole city and we've got to stop this. See, Artemis was one of the most popular gods of that time in the Greco-Roman times. And her, and her temple in Ephesus, it dominated the skyline. Four times the size of the Parthenon. That's the Parthenon in Athens, not the Parthenon milk bar at Brassel. Four times the size of the Parthenon. And at this time, at this time of writing, she was at her peak. She was the focal point of the entire region. She dominated the culture and the economy and the calendar and the social system. And the craftsmen would make these miniature statues of Artemis and they would, they would take people would buy them off the craftsmen and they would take them into the temple of Artemis and have one of the priests of Artemis make some incantation, wave a wand or something over the, over the, the, the statue and then they would take it to their homes and they would make a shrine to Artemis. And the trade was lucrative but it, was, it has fallen away and the tradesmen are upset. This revival has actually upset the economy of the city. There was a whole month that was dedicated to Artemis worship and people would come from all over the region to Ephesus and this was the time when Demetrius decided to make his move. The population was swollen, devotion was high and you had the force of the mob. Demetrius jumps up and uh, defends the divinity of Artemis and their way of life as he, and he turns it into a battle between Artemis and Jesus and it's on for young and old. Now, I want you to see here that the gospel of Jesus always causes a disturbance 
when the claims of Jesus are taken seriously. So how does that affect revival in the city? Number one, it affects the economy. (coughs) Money. People were losing money, so they got upset. Number two, it affects the cultural narrative. It affected their way of life. And number three, it affected the spiritual nexus. Spirituality was now starting to focus on Jesus and not on the great goddess Artemis. And the city clerk actually gets up and defends the Christians and he says, you've brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. See, the Christians didn't behave badly. They didn't intentionally cause trouble. As one commentator puts it, the Ephesian believers did not lobby the city authorities, picket the silversmith shops and organise demonstrations against Artemis. They didn't try to be popular. They preached and lived out their message and let the power of their changed lives confront and push out the old ways. There it is in a nutshell. They preached and lived out their message and let the power of their changed lives push out the old ways. See, the, the city clerk is worried that this uproar might cause their Roman overlords to be upset. See, the Romans allowed gods, they allowed a whole range of gods, as long as you didn't think your god was the god. If you didn't think you had the truth, then you could live in the Roman system and worship your god. But if you think, if you thought that you, were the, you had the, the one true god, as they did, if you thought you had the truth, as they did, then there's a problem. So, right now, where we live in this cultural moment, we have to get ready for what's coming. If we're really going to bring revival to our city, we have to get ready for some things that aren't nice, that might be uncomfortable, yeah? So what's going on in our community at the moment? Anxiety, addiction, family breakdown, domestic violence. It's enough in those four things to say that a response on our part is required. We have to get a conviction that people are actually lost, that the gospel of Jesus is actually good news, and we cannot let the fear of being socially awkward stand in the way of that. Yeah? So just a couple of points to close with, if the band would like to join me on stage. This is a story about a first century church in a first century city. And what happens when the gospel of Jesus comes to a city that is not interested in it? What are the implications for us serving Jesus in Ipswich? Number one, controversy. We've got to be comfortable with controversy. It's unavoidable. What we believe, if we believe it to the full, if we believe that it transforms us, if we believe that we carry the power of God, is controversial. It's controversial in any context. Your life will always bring a reaction because when the gospel is believed and lived out, the power of God is attracted. The power isn't in your presentation. It's not in your articulation. The Holy Spirit takes the truth of the gospel and he anoints it and it goes deep into the human heart. We carry good news. Let's not assume that underneath people in our culture aren't aching for a message of hope. Yeah? 
Don't capitulate in the moment for the sake of acceptance. Hold your nerve. We often pray for people for boldness in sharing the gospel. Yeah, that's, and, that's, and it's good that we do that. But it actually takes a decision in the moment that this is the right thing. Not about courage, not about anything else. Decision in the moment that this is the right thing. When asked, why is our life like this? We tell people. And we do it without backing away from it, without watering it down, without making excuses. This is how it is. So we be comfortable with controversy. The second thing is to make courageous engagement your goal. Self-preservation is the enemy of evangelism. Love must outweigh fear and self-preservation. So if we really believe that this is true, that Jesus is alive and that the gospel saves people from death, sin, Satan and hell, that it brings freedom and peace and life and hope and deliverance. If we love Jesus, we won't be able to not talk about him. In Acts 19, there's a riot. The city's in uproar and they're chanting, long live Artemis of the, the Ephesians. And then Paul has to be physically restrained from going in, in walking into a riot and talking about Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want that. I want that. I want, I want to be like that. I think, I think deep down, I think we all want to be like that. Yeah? Yeah, give me some nods if you, if you feel like that. Yeah. I think we all want to be that guy. That when it's, when it's on, when, it, when there's a Donnybrook happening, when there's a stoush, that we want to go in and talk about Jesus. Not to go in in an argumentative or argumentative or, or combative way or an arrogant and patronising way. No, Paul led a respectful riot. Today, in Ephesus, you know what the biggest industry is? It's actually tourism. Christians visiting the ruins of the temple of Artemis. See, Artemis didn't survive. She didn't survive long. The ruins of the temple are there. My son Brett's been there. He's seen it. Been to Ephesus. Seen the ruins. They're just posts sticking up out of the ground. They mean nothing. So I've read this passage probably in the last week, more 30 or 40 times. And every time I read it, it, it just, it affects me. It affects me some way. And I don't know, I don't know, maybe this morning it's, it's affected you in some way that you can't actually define, that you can't actually put your finger on, but it's affected you some way. Maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's the, the intensity of the discipleship. Maybe it was the miracles that were released. Maybe it was Paul wanting to dive into the middle of a riot and preach the gospel. Maybe it was those things. I don't know. We'll explore that in a moment. Maybe it's that we all need to be a little bit more courageous and take a more courageous stance about what we believe and to be a little bit more vocal when we're, when we're asked. It's not a ghost story unless it scares you. And this is scary. Sharing your faith can be scary. I remember when I was 
in the Youth Alive band and specifically in the horn section back in the 1980s, distant past. And we made it a thing that our horn section would go, whenever there was a, a rally in the city, we would go the day before and, and hand out tracks and, and just talk to people on the street about Jesus. I mean, sometimes it got hairy. Sometimes it felt like we barely escaped with our lives, but gee, it felt good. Gee, it felt good. And, and that's, that's, what, that's what I think we all want. I think we all want to be able, we want to be confident in sharing the gospel. We want to be confident to talk to people. We want to be confident with, with controversy. And that's where Holy Spirit comes in. He's in us for us to transform us, but He's on us for others to bring power. Yeah? You believe it? Let's pray. Why don't you stand? Let's bow our heads. Father, this morning, we thank you that we are a long-standing church in this city. Father, as we look ahead, we see our church redeeming culture, bringing influence, leading many lives into a, a saving knowledge of your precious Son, changing the economic landscape of our city, changing the spiritual nexus, changing the cultural narrative of our city. But Father, we need your hand upon us to do it. We need, we need power to do it. And we thank you that you've poured that out like rivers of living water gushing out of us, flowing from heaven into us and out of us into the community. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. While every head's bowed, I just want, to, I just want you to, to do something for me. If you've ever led someone to Jesus, if you've ever led a soul to Christ, why don't you put your hand up? Father, I thank you for all the hands raised. Lord, I pray that you would multiply that which is upon their lives, Lord God. Father, I pray that they would be hungry to do it again, hungry to bring more people into a saving knowledge of your precious Son. Father, I just pray for a fresh anointing, a fresh leading, a fresh hand, more living water flowing through their lives, more living water, more living water flowing through their lives in Jesus' name. Put your hands down if you want to, if you want to be that person that leads people to Jesus. You never have before. Put your hand up. Father, thank you. Thank you for those hands. Thank you for the honesty and authenticity in those lives. Father, I pray that, Lord, you would just bring opportunity to each one, each one who has their hands raised, merely out of the living of their lives. Lord, that they won't have to seek it, they won't have to chase it, that it will come to them, Lord God, that you will bring an opportunity into their paths. And Father, we pray for your hand to be upon them, Lord God, your hand to be with them, Lord God, that you would uh, bring power into their lives, determination and fortitude into their lives at that moment. In Jesus' name, we pray. Father, I just commit us as a church to you. Lord God, in the future that you have for us, the future that you have in terms of, of bringing this city to know you. Father, we thank you for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for transformed lives. We thank you for the questions that will be asked because of those transformed lives, Lord God. And we thank you, 
Lord, for your power in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast.